Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, Nicole Bassett and Mara Dilley, the sustainability leaders behind Cascade Circular, talk with students about circular design, systems thinking, and challenge students to take on the critical design challenges we face. In 1304, Pope Benedict XI hoped to hire a fresco artist, and he sent a message to Giotto's studio in Florence. With just a paper and a brush, Giotto flicked his wrist and drew a perfect freehand circle. So it's been 700 years, and no one has drawn a perfect circle since. Okay, that's not true. But the point of the story is that circles are hard, and circles can make you famous. So uh, let's figure out how to do it. This is Nicole and Mara. We are Cascade Circular, and we are famous for designing circles. I love this intro. Thank you. Um, you like it? It's really good. So I'm Nicole. Um, I have been in the apparel industry for a long time, doing mostly sustainability work, um, environmental, social, for Patagonia, Prana. Uh, and then in 2015, I started a company called The Renewal Workshop, which was designed to provide uh, basically operations and technology for brands to also resell their products and move into circularity. And so that's my background, Mara. And I used to work with Nicole. So we did brand education at the renewal workshops. And when we worked with our brand partners, like the North Face, for example, um, we would take back the product that they already created within a linear system, try to renew it and to resell it. And we kept hitting up against these kind of designed in product problems that kept us from um, circulating the product as far as we would like to. So that's where this workshop really came from, this real life experience of trying to take the product to the next level. How do we how do we get out from um, under in in front of our own way um, with product design? And so that's how this came to be. Um, And before uh, renewal workshop, I worked at the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, which is really um, the leader of um, circularity, developed the circular methodology that we work with today, and that has been developed into the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And I know you read the new textiles economy previous to this class. So um, that's kind of the body of knowledge that this all comes from, and where we come from too. So we're going to start off with this question in the chat or with your voices. Who can tell me why can you recycle an aluminum can, but not a windbreaker? 
uh, the system set in place. There's the opportunity to recycle with it. There's drop-off locations as well as like an end-of-life solution for aluminum. So we know how to recycle it versus windbreakers where there hasn't really been a system put in place to recycle windbreakers. Maybe like like warmware, but that's one one thing I can think of. Abby got it. Abby got the full question and the full answer. Because um, oftentimes people just say that it's because of a mono material, um, because that's true. It is a mono material, and there's a market for recycling in aluminum, but there's also this system. So that's what you refer to. And that's really um, what we're trying to drive home with this that you can't just design the product to circulate, you need to design the product and the system. So the system includes collections for aluminum and the markets to buy recycled aluminum and put them back into, into new cans, right? So that whole wheel churns to recycle. Um, and we do not have that churning machine for windbreakers whatsoever. We don't have the product designed to cycle. We do not have the systems to pick those um, things back up. Um, so circular design, it's a design practice that's organized, organized around principles that align products to life on earth. It's also the circular lens that's helping us ask the right questions. So how do I learn how to ask the right questions of my products and in that way enable them to cycle better? That's what we're talking about when we're talking about circular design. So we have this kind of philosophy, right? The, um, this is our planet, our beautiful blue planet. Um, everything that's ever been here has always been here and nothing has ever left this planet. We have um, a conservation of mass on Earth, except for space garbage um, and satellites that we have sent into outer space. This is every single molecule that's always been here and always will be here. So our water is dinosaur pee. It's also effluent from a factory. Um, when we think about it in those wide zoomed out terms, it really helps us understand why our design needs to be confined to life on earth. Um, and when you think about the place where our story takes place, um, it helps us really understand that this linear economy is really alien to our planet, right? And why do I say that word alien? I really mean it because a linear economy is an economy that requires unlimited resources. And yet the earth's resources are limited. And a linear economy is one that needs things to go away, but Earth is a place where nothing disappears and everything spreads. Absolutely everything spreads and nothing taught us that better than the pandemic, right? You can't hold something away, there is no such thing. Um, and acknowledging really straight on that linear is colonial. When we take and we make and we waste, we're depending on our tacit agreement of all of us to sacrifice people and to pollute land, air, and water. So uh, when we think about you know, the repercussions of this, our minds often go to end of use, end of life. Um, there's a wonderful project called Dead White Man's Clothes um, that you should explore if you haven't already. Um, that looks deep into this, um, the waste from our products, but the waste, that waste that this man is standing upon is really only a minor fraction of the overall footprint of creating our apparel, right? So 94% of the waste that goes, that is attributed to the creation of a product is actually pre-consumer. So what you're looking at right here is only 6% of the damage that has occurred creating this stuff. It is a very colonial outlook. So we can just take and we can just make and we can just waste. And the thing of it really is the clothes don't end up in landfill by accident. They are sent there by design. 
and that is product design, but it's very much so also your business design um, as well. So the kind of this overarching system, um, but we are product designers. So product design is where we're going to work. Um, and then other people are going to stand up and um, do the, the business design work. And we're going to meet in the middle to do that. Um, so this is the take home. Remember this part. This is the most important thing. Um, there's kind of three areas of work that we are doing when we're doing circular product design. And the number one thing I want you to think about is used more. So using a product more is the number one way to lower negative impacts of stuff. And how are you going to go about doing that? You're going to redefine growth and adopt a circular business model. A little bit out of your hands, but um, you're working together within your company to make those changes. Design for emotional and physical durability. This is straight on with you guys, right? How are we going to make these products that we're going to sell out, bring them back, use them, sell them again, bring them back, sell them again, bring them back, right? So how can we get more use out of every product? And that means kind of shifting emotional and physical durability. We'll talk about that later on. Um, enabling circular operations with circular data. We'll come back to that. And co-designing a circular supply chain. Um, and then the other two components in the legs of this stool, making sure we understand use more, use more, use more is the most important. Um, you also want to think about your circular materials. Um, there's a lot of work already done within sustainable materials, preferred materials, et cetera. Um, but we want to think further further down this road on materials that match with recycling systems, right? Because if you think that you're going to recycle it, it better have a matching recycling technology, right? If they don't, then it doesn't work. Um, and then made to be made again, right? So if you think you're going to recycle these materials, you have to design them in such a way that you can extract them and then actually recycle the materials because we do not have a windbreaker recycling machine, Okay. Maybe you'll have a PET recycling machine. Maybe you'll have a nylon recycling machine. That doesn't exist. Um, but we do not have windbreaker recycling machines. So that's what made to be made again means. Okay, so first exercise, I'm gonna give you 30 seconds. And I want you to, oh, oh, choose one thing that you're wearing. It's your sweater, it's your scarf, take off your shoe, choose a garment that you're wearing or it's just like right next to you right now and um, use it for the rest of this um, hour. Okay, everybody get something. And I'll time it. And Nicole's going to time it. So get something. Is that okay? You guys okay with getting something? Thumbs up if you have your sweater, your hoodie, something. Okay, I see. I used a few thumbs up. Okay, 30 seconds. Right, Nicole? You ready? Yep. Okay. Count up every material in your product and then put the number in the chat when I say 30 seconds is up. Ready, set, go. Count up every material in your product. <laughs> okay. People are done. So fast. No wins. No wins for early entry. Yeah. Halfway. Keep counting. Wyatt's iPad says there's two. <laughs> uh, that's 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Okay. Um, I see. Nicole, did you see a number over 10? I just see the first 10. So most of them are oscillating between two and seven. Um, but 10s are highest so far. 
Okay, tens are highest so far. So, um, you know, wop wop. Um, actually, if you include chemicals, which are materials too, we're going between 200 to 500 material inputs in a typical, my example is the cotton poly hoodie. But no matter what you have, it's still more than meets the eye, right? Because chemicals are materials too. They go into your product, they leave, or they go into the land, they go into the air, they go into the water, or they stay with your product. And they might not be listed on the materials um, tag, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. So um, accounting for our materials, trying to um, figure out where they're going, trying to cycle them, uh, we have to see the unseen um, as we go through it. So that's all part of kind of taking the systems view on um, on our work. So um, next up, I want you to count all the countries that your product has visited, starting from the first fiber and including these chemicals that I just pointed out, right? So the dyes, the finishing chemicals, just sort of mentally step through where do you think these things are coming from, right? You can start with the easy one, like Cotton, mm, probably India, probably Pakistan. Um, my poly, where's that coming from? It's a it's a PET plastic. So where would I have the chemical refineries for that? Where's the manufacturing taking place? Um, and then did it, you know, are the cut and sew facilities in the same place that the materials have been developed? These sorts of steps, step through all of this um, and kind of count up all the different countries your product have visited. Make up the story. For your product just just think it through all right go so since we know these guys are fast they're so fast okay so there's no right answer um you know because we all have different products of course but um it's just a way to really think about where our product has gone and how many different systems connections there are um, in our uh, our products, like what we're what we're doing. And so it also it talks about how many people, right? When we talk about this relationship of like how many people are involved in our systems. That's right. Okay, okay Nicole, are you seeing my um, systems thinking screen? I am. Yep. Okay. So I'm going to show a quick video that helps understand um, all the different connections um, that are coming through. And truly, when you're thinking about uh, clothing as chemistry, which it is, you really got to think back to the chemicals and where that chemical processing is coming from. Picture a coffee table in the living room of a family made of wood, covered in stain and varnish. This coffee table used to be a tree living in the ground. Its roots entwined with the roots of other trees, interacting with bacteria and other living things in the soil. In fact, the tree was a teeming colony of life, hosting fungi, insects, and birds. If the tree was in a forest, it, together with other trees, provided a habitat for numerous other living beings, from bacteria to bears, all of them living and dying, trading nutrients in the process. The trees soak up sunlight and water and carbon dioxide and then release oxygen back into the air. When the life of the tree was taken to make the coffee table, it most likely wasn't alone. Many trees were taken and many coffee tables were made. 
if we imagine all the wooden coffee tables in the entire world and all the trees it took to make those tables, all the birds, bears, bugs, and fungi living in and among those trees, if we imagine all the energy it took to power the tools that made the coffee tables, all the energy it took to ship the coffee tables around the world, all the people involved, from lumberjacks to furniture salespeople, if we imagine all the coffee and all the tea and all the snacks served on the coffee tables, if we imagine all the magazines and all the coffee table books sitting on all the coffee tables, if we imagine all the people eating the snacks, reading the magazines, and drinking the coffee, we still only get a partial picture. We could take any element in this story, bugs, bears, magazines, coffee, and continue to draw connections, ultimately, infinitely. What emerges is that the coffee table is connected to everything else in the world. Bears are also connected to everything else in the world, and so is coffee, so are magazines, and so are you. Anything we lay our eyes on is connected to everything else. We can think of it like this. Anytime you pick something up, you're picking up the entire world. Each time you pick up something different, you're just using a different handle. Where does it come from? Where does it go? And who does it? Because we need to know that as we're redesigning the system, if I want to hand my product off to someone and I expect it to come back to me, how do I design that in? So asking these very simple questions will get you very far within circular design. So there's a very brief picture of where your product has been. Um, where does it come from? Let's ask our product, the same one as before, where is it going? So we think about all the materials that went in. We thought about all the countries that came from. We thought of all the people who produced or participated in the production of this uh, product. And now it's here with you on your lap, on your body, on your foot. What happens after you? So ask yourself this question five times. Be honest. Write it down. Ask yourself, what happens? And then what happens? And then what happens? And then what happens? I want five entries for what happens after, um, after you to your product. Yeah, so Abby, I see you're or thrown away, um, you know, donated to Goodwill. Like, Nicole, do you remember the stat? It's like 6% of what's donated to Goodwill or Salvation Army. What is it, Nicole? 20%. 20% of what's donated to a charity will actually get sold by that charity. The other 80% usually gets um, sold offshore. So it's either being turned into rags or um, as that photo showed, it's getting um, put into a developing country that either is using it or in in um, ultimately has landfill as their ultimate destinations. So we put this forward to help kind of understand why we want to make this shift into circularity um, because linear economy, and we like to make fun of the linear economy, and we welcome you to do that, to do that as well. Um, the linear economy is a loser economy. 
like this, you can put your L up on your forehead and just make fun of it because it deserves it. It's a loser economy. It's not smart. It loses value all the way down the supply chain. We have something of very high value, like our natural resources, like our people, like our land, and we tear it up, we rip it into pieces, we put it into our products, we use them very briefly, and then we throw them away, right? That's not smart. We can do better. And we're going to do better. So um, one way to redesign, redesigning our economy around um, principles of, uh, that are going to serve us all better, uh, we use these circular economy principles to get us there. So I'm sure this was covered, I believe it was, uh, in the new textiles economy, of course it was. Um, but we're just going to talk it through uh, real quick. Do you want to do it, Nicole? Great. So the first um, principle is to design out waste and pollution. So as you heard from Mara, we, we waste is showing up in the actual manufacturing of the product all along the supply chain. So it's not just about what do we do at the end of the of the product, but how do we actually um, think through where waste shows up and then design that out from the get go? So um, an example would be go to the next slide. And um, yeah. And I encourage you if you have uh, if you have examples of how um, companies out there have designed out waste, uh, put them in the chat. Um, this is one SodaStream. So SodaStream designed out plastic bottles as a way of getting sparkling water by leveraging the thing you all have in our homes. Fortunately, for most, uh, is that a tap of water? So designing out the thing that you don't need using the things you do need. Another one of our favorite examples is uh, a, we don't really need stir sticks for our coffee. If you pour the milk in first and then the coffee in second, the act of the pour actually makes it um, stir itself. And so thinking of ways where you can say, hey, what if I don't need it? Next. Um, so keeping products and materials in use. As we said, chemicals are materials too. So we have to think about them throughout the supply chain and making sure that when we add things to product development, uh, different chemistries and chemicals, that we've already th thought of a way to keep them in use as long as possible. So um, great examples. Um, oh, right. So one of the things to think about and keep in the back of your mind is... Uh, that really all materials fall into a category, um, what we call as a technical nutrient. So you might be familiar with this from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. The green side is for things that truly are designed for the biosphere, like an apple. I eat an apple, I throw the core out, um, and that apple core can biodegrade and go back into the soil because I've removed the sticker off of it. And it is... Um, it comes from the earth and it can go back into the earth. There is no extra chemistry added to it. And so that makes sense and can fit on a biological side. In apparel, textiles, and hard goods, most materials, even if it's a natural fiber, has had some chemistry added to it. And that chemistry isn't absorbable to the natural environment. So we just treat that as a technical nutrient. So we want to keep things in use as long as possible. And this diagram shows how we want to really leverage those inner loops as long as possible before we end up in the world of recycling. We don't want to just swap out our garbage with recycling. And that's the solution because then we've missed all the opportunity for impact on the inner loops. Next. Yeah. <laughs> 
So there's lots of examples of business models like that. You rent, you probably don't own a tuxedo, but you might rent one. You go to a city like New York, you can rent your own bike. We rent our homes, we rent all kinds of things. Um, resale markets, uh, making sure that product is designed for a long time. Uh, and so these are the types of things that we can start to access when we design products to have a really, really long life cycle. Next. The third impact area or the third design principle is to actually regenerate nature. So right now we're exploiting nature. How can we use business and design and product as a way to create better in a better environment? And so one example we love is a company called Christy Dawn. And what they've done is they um, use cotton and wanted to invest in regenerative cotton principles in the farms that they uh, source from in India. Uh, but it was expensive. It's a change and it's a shift. Uh, it's not as exploitative. So you can't get as much cotton off the same uh, hectare of, of field. So what they did was create a almost like a com- community, uh, no, CSA, Community Supported <laughs> Agriculture, thanks, uh, model where they went to their customers and said, hey, why don't you... Pr- would you be interested in pre-buying your, your cotton for next year by investing now so we could get the money to the farmers immediately? And then at the end of the year, depending on what the harvest is, you'll either get more or less depending on um, what happens in the, you know, with the market and the environment and all that stuff. Um, and so far they've had two years of this. And the first year people who put in $200 got a $300 impact um, benefit. And then the following year, I think they got like 200 back as like, they just got their equivalent back. So it's, it's about taking the risk together um, as one example. Uh, next. So the other thing that Mar and I really noticed is that the design principles that we just discovered shared with the, that are come from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation are very much principles, but they're missing values that need to be taken into consideration also when you're in the design process. And so we, um, we've added those here. And the first one is around abundance. So we have one earth, that's it. <laughs> and so we have to create growth um, based on the limits of our planet. And so growth gets a lot of criticism about it in an economic sense, because we think we can exponentially grow. But in in reality, in nature, we have limits to growth and we're okay with it. Otherwise, all of us would be like 15 feet tall and that would be really cumbersome. So we want to grow to a point and there are businesses that are evolving and figuring out how to have limits to growth. So Organic Valley, if any of you drink milk or eat yogurt or buy butter, they are a a farmer cooperative. So they are actually, the business is owned by the farmers themselves. So they're very needs-based growth. They can only grow if there's a market there because they've got cows and they've got farms and they've got people and they can't promise unlimited sales. Um, They have to be it based on how many farms and farmers they have. So it's an interesting way of looking at okay, what is the, what is sort of limited growth look like? The next one is um, really focusing on how do we decolonize uh, our design? And so we want to have equity and we want to have a just transition into that equity so that those who are making the clothes in developing countries are have equal access to a, a lifestyle 
um, that anyone that is healthy and has well-being as anyone who is designing the clothes. So these are two principles that we, or two values that we ask that you consider as well, along with the design principles. Okay. Thank you, Nicole. Um, it's a lot to take in, but um, when you start thinking about these principles, it helps you make decisions when you get into the nitty gritty, right? So um, you're way off in this place where you don't know how to make your choices. Um, my mentor said, like, grab the trunk, hold on to the trunk. And the trunk has these principles and they help you make these um, decisions. Am I designing out waste and pollution? Am I enabling its use at the highest level? Um meaning we don't go straight to recycling. We stay up higher. How can I reuse it for longer? For example, how do I think from the product level to the molecular level? Um, and then really act the equity and justice part that Nicole talks about too. How does this transition, this shift, so much is going to move, how so much is going to change. Um, how do we bring everyone along as that happens? So our three chapters of material, the uh, content, uh, it's going to be circular materials used more and designed for disassembly. Let's talk about materials. So um, circular materials are, are, materials are products. They're just small products that build up into bigger products. Um, and there's some examples that are emerging and we're still working on this. Are we applying our principles to whatever it is that we're making or designing in this um, materials being the example here? So they're built up from the circular design principles. Um, there's two really cool ones. Um, design out waste and pollution. So Dyco is a Dutch company and they do closed loop dyeing. So all the dye goes into these vats. Um, it's used to dye the product and then it stays within the vat. You put in a new product and it stays within the vat. There's no effluent, nothing coming out except for color. Um, regenerating natural ecosystems. So Koyuchi uh, does climate beneficial wool. You're hurting the animals in a way that regenerates the soil instead of extracting from the soil. So you're making your business, your supply chain, be something that's regenerative, regenerating nature by design, as opposed to extracting from nature by design. Tacit design, but it's still there, right? Um, so uh, we are not materials experts and that's okay with us because we are reuse experts. And when we encounter, but we encounter so many barriers to cycling, to reusing at the materials level that we need to talk about it, right? And they can fall into these three categories, too many toxic and monstrous hybrid. So too many um, materials, we find this very often in products, there's stuff that just doesn't need to be there, right? Um, and it could be there for reasons like tariffs. Um, so there's this uh, great episode, uh, podcast, 99% uh, Invisible, where they talk about the tariffs, um, preferential tariffs on zippers. And if you remember that late 90s trend, there was like zippers and all these pockets all over the jackets. Um, it was really ugly. Um, and it was because we got a preferential tax for having pockets and zippers. Um, it doesn't need to be there, right? So asking these questions like, why am I doing these things? And do I have to? Uh, it happens a lot with uh, DWR and other sorts of coatings. Um, something to, it's a place to push back on. And it's a place to ask questions. Why are we doing what we're doing? And having too many and then bridging into toxic materials um, can really impede your recyclability because we don't want to cycle toxic materials. Um, and so toxicity is a major barrier as well. So we do not need, um, I hope you're following all the PFAS news of um, the exposures to uh, petrofluorinated carbons, isn't it? Um, 
uh, and how, thank you for the nod, Amber, <laughs> how this exposure, like including in um, athletic apparel, like sports bra is seeping into our bodies and right into our mammary glands. Um, that's not where we want PFAS. We want them nowhere around. So toxicity is an issue that um, we can look at and examine within our materials, make choices away from that. Uh, and then monstrous hybrid, this one's kind of specific to uh, circularity. A monstrous hybrid is a concept that comes from cr cradle to cradle. And it's when you're taking something from that green biosphere and something from the technical sphere or two technical materials, and you're wetting them together, you're weaving them together in a way that is inextractable. So when you're choosing your materials, you want to think all the way forward to recycling and think, is there a recycling technology that matches this material? Um, and perhaps there is, perhaps you're going to use um, PET, you're going to use um, polyester. And yes, we have recycling technology for that. But if you blend it with nylon, we don't, right? We don't have that technology. And that's a monstrous hybrid. You're going to blend together an acrylic and um, spaghetti. We don't have that technology. It's not going to work. So um, we can't do it that way. We have to think about um, our monstrous hybrids. Um, and if you wanted to recycle nylon and spaghetti, then you're really going to have to talk to your materials developers and make sure that that's um, going to work all the way through. Um, so we do an exercise called a material cycle audit that we're just going to look at today um, in the interest of time. But um, let's pretend my example is this spiffy jumper with um, it is a wool acrylic blend and it has these embellishments on it, these sequins, right? So the question becomes um, just stepping through and you can look at your product in your lap and ask yourself, you know, do I have too many products? Do I have too many materials in here? Are any of these materials toxic? And remember, it's not the two, three, four, six that you wrote in the chat, right? It's all of them, um, the ones that are not on the care label. Um, are, are any of those toxic? And how would I know? Um, monsters hybrids. So um, it's something that you're going to keep on looking at throughout your career. Um, now we've had this talk. Um, does it match to a recycling technology? Can I extract this one thing from the other? Is the weave um, kind of burying a material that could be recycled or could be repaired or could be reused, um, but it, now it's trapped inside of my product in a way that can't be extracted and it's kind of um, lost there. Right. So these are important, small and mighty questions to ask yourself about your materials when you're making your choices as you design. Uh, so you come back to that later um, and use that to help you think through things. So the point of it all is you want to get better, fewer materials back. You're going to do that by eliminating materials too many innovating around materials. Um, is they toxic? Are they monstrous hybrids? Um, how do I innovate, do materials innovation that, that enable me to cycle? Um, and that means just collaborating and participating in the supply chain, not being passive, not just taking what you're given. How do we kind of be more activist around what we want from the industry? Um, and then choosing our cycle path is really important too, right? So as I mentioned, what I want you to do is think about use more. How can we use these products more, right? And that might work for my ski jacket and uh, like a nice wool sweater. I can see the resale value there. But there's um, certain products, of course, like innerwear, uh, next to skin products that might be best suited for one user. Okay, one user. Got it. 
but for a longer period of time. So how do I design for durability and then design for that product to actually be reincorporated back into the system? How do we do that materials recovery? And that's what I mean by choose your cycle path. So we want to match materials to my cycle path. If I want this to be used for a very long time, I'm going to choose our most durable materials. Um, like wool for innerwear is, I love it. Um, and uh, follow our circular design principles and then communicate that intention, right? If it's going to be taken back, um, how does people? how do people know what to do? How do people know how to use that system? And I don't mean just the customers. I mean, all these other people who are going to be participating in the circular economy, um, reuse markets, um, uh, recyclers, uh, other brands. Is your brand taking it back? How is the communication flowing amongst all the people who are participating in um, this new circular economy? Where did it come from? Where is it going? And who's doing that work? Do you want to say something, Nicole? All right. Um, choose your psychopath also goes the other way, right? If something is a very, very short term, I don't think it should be this way, but um, I see this all the time. Uh, like the crappiest thing using the most like e eternal materials, right? Uh, like, a, like, a, like a polyurethane. It's just like this dingy little thing that you're just using for like Halloween one year. Um, if it's only going to be used once, um, think about where it shouldn't be around on the planet forever. Okay, use more. Most important part. How do we use things more? So I don't know if any of you remember Blockbuster. I know Amber probably does. Um, show about Blockbuster right now. Oh, then you all must know about it. <laughs> uh, so... Back in the day, pre-Netflix, uh, Friday night, we used to walk to the store and um, pick a movie from Blockbuster. Can you guys put in the chat why you might rent something instead of owning something? And you can use this movie as an example if you want. Awesome. So you guys put in here saving money. Uh, you may only want to use it for a short period of time. You don't really want the hassle of it. You just want the service of it. So you've now changed your relationship to the thing, to being an owner of it, to being a user of it. Next slide. All right. Same here. Why put in the chat? Why might you buy a pre-owned certified something instead of the new one? Cost less expensive, cheaper. cheaper. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, Price is a bit pretty big driver for this. And it also may be that you're looking for features or benefits or a thing that occurred in a previous model that they got rid of over time because they thought they were designing something better. Um, so, so we already have experiences of different types of business models. And what we mean by a business model is how does a brand make money? So right now, brands make money by making and selling new things. 
what we see in circular is an opportunity to think differently about how you generate revenue through things like resale and rental. And using products is the single largest opportunity to reduce the environmental impact because all of that effort that it took to make this, if we just keep making more and more and more, we're running into violating the principles of circular design and we're going to run out of raw materials in the world at some point. So resale and rental are two business models that we're seeing more of in the circular space. And we're seeing way more in outdoor and in apparel in the last five to 10 years. And we'll only see more of it. So you have these questions. It's your starting point for where you are right now. So um, circular business models are available. They're happening now. Obviously, I'm sure you've all bought things just for yourself or anyone off Poshmark, off of Depop, off of Macari. Um, I mean, I love them. I use them every day. Um, That's the starting point. Um, And so we're just in this moment right now, like where we were with the North Face, where we were trying to resell the things that were built into the linear model. And you can get pretty far, but you're only going to get so far. Nicole, do you want to say the results of the leading circular report? That's that's right. So we we did an analysis to look at the carbon impact of making something new versus um, what the carbon impact would be of renewing a product. And if you compare the two from a manufacturing perspective, it's a 95% carbon savings for renewing a product because you don't have to come up with new raw materials. We're extending the life of the existing products. And then from an overall life cycle of a product, you actually reduce the carbon by 50% by giving a product another life. So it's really significant for us if we're looking at global strategies around carbon as a society that we really start to pay attention to the opportunity that's involved with used more. Yeah. Um, So this is where we are right now, your opportunities and challenges with your products right now. And then moving forward, we need to start thinking about designing in reuse intentionally. And you're going to come right up at this question around durability. So what does durability mean? Obviously, it's the ability to remain functional and relevant over time when faced with the challenges of normal operation. And we are familiar with physical durability, the construction, the material components, and the reinforcements in order to create products that can resist damage and wear. Very important in your industry, the outdoor industry. Um, But what about emotional durability? So kind of picture this. This is how I've come to think about um, circular design um, from uh, an apparel and standard, an apparel standpoint. Um, we have kind of these generations of lines. Um, so it's 2023. We have our 2023 collection. That one goes out and we're expecting it to come back to us, let's say three times before it has to be um, retired. Um, but that three times is so much more than than it is right now, just like going out once. So it's coming back three times. Does that mean that I, as a designer, hold space for those next generations to come back? Like, 
what if I, very simple example, send out like a white t-shirt um, in gen one, and then the next year it comes back gen two. And I over, now I put the print on it. Now I do some sort of print on it. And then gen three, it comes back and I do an over dye on top of that. Totally simple example, but start to think about um, different strategies that I could employ to when I expect to see this product back, how can I change? It goes from, you know, long trousers to shorts to, you know, really short shorts. Um, and just thinking about um, things in that those different waves, but predicting that it's come back, coming back, that's building in this concept of emotional durability. How is it going to stay relevant and desirable to the user or multiple users over time? So designing in multiple generations into one product, anticipating that, and that's also an asset to you. So flip every challenge into an asset. I know what's coming back. I know what colors I sent out in 2021, and I expect them to start coming back to me by 2023. They've cycled through. Now, what am I going to do with them? How am I going to couple my 2023 collection with my 2027 collection? Right? It's multi-dimensional chess, and it's kind of way more fun. I I think. Um, so we're not just designing that product; we're designing the system. And the whole concept of collections isn't so tight. It's not this little pod. It's this big um, moving system that's going to click in and out. Um, I think it's neat. So anticipating how these product generations will layer onto one another over and over again, and then splicing that together with uh, material selection and then um, modularity and accessibility for ease of repair. So this is what we see in the real life when we're trying to repair these um, products and get them back out. Um, they need to be accessible and repairable. So if something has broken, like the zipper, for example, very easy fix if you plan for it, right? If you allow enough seam allowance to get into that zipper and to put in a new zipper, you can keep the whole jacket. You don't have to toss the whole jacket for want of a button or want of a zipper. Uh, you could repair it if you plan in advance for it. And sometimes that's not done. And that's going to be a challenge of friction, um, probably with your company um, as they're shifting into a circular business model, because it's of course tied to an expense. But if it's on them to, to think out their business model and realize that it's actually cheaper to put in a couple more cents now so that you can repair it and then resell the garment later on without all the production costs. But we'll talk to them about that. You don't have to worry. Just you put in the steam allowances. Okay. <laughs> um, so Mara, we have probably another five, seven minutes. Um, so we can have time for questions at the end, just okay. giving you a time check. That's fine. Um, so data, do you want to talk about data? Yeah. So the other thing too, as you probably noticed on your product is your product is very limited in telling you what it does and says and who it is, right? You had to make up a lot of story when you did that. One way that we can actually accelerate the circular economy is by applying data to a product so that they can tell their story to the multiple owners, the multiple businesses that are that are going to um, use it. And so there's, there's stuff going on out there in this space, but this idea of digitizing your product, be it a barcode's added to it or a QR code or an RFID thread, something that then is linked back to a database that has a lot more information other than... North Face women's medium blue jacket. But we want to have its years of creation, all the materials that are in it, the chemicals, um, original selling price, features and benefit, original product photography. If we can get these things onto the product, then we can help accelerate and um, build circular business models to be a lot more 
efficient than they are going to be right now. Okay. So that's used more. And then kind of final chapter is looped back in. So after we've used it, used it, used it, used it, used it as much as possible, its highest value, we've repaired it, we've um, fixed little panels, um, the whole thing might need to be retired now, and that's looped back in. How do I design for disassembly? Because it refreeing the components and the materials to be reused. There's some components that can be reused, and then those that cannot are recycled because way back when you designed it, you chose materials that match recycling technology. So look at your material, now your product, and just think think, think on it. How long would it take to disassemble this product? How long would it take to take apart my shirt and get them into piles of recyclable materials? And what would you do with the reusable parts? How would you get them back into a system that would actually reuse them? Not just in your drawer, I'm just going to leave you to think about that on your own. You can talk about it a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, so you think your product is recyclable. So Amber just said uh, two weeks ago, she was at OR and uh, all the brands were talking about how their product is so recyclable. Amber, did you ask him these questions? <laughs> can you disassemble it? Can she disassemble it? Okay, I'm the designer. I know how it comes apart. Well, can the processor disassemble it? How did she get it? Where does she send the parts? Are they in her drawer? Is that useful material library? How do you, the brand, get materials back? So these are the questions that take it to the next level, right? Like a brand says, oh, we can recycle our product. Really, how? <laughs> I have these uh, Moses sandals that are EVA and um, I don't know if you know them. And uh, so it is technically recyclable, but where? You know, I live in San Francisco that we don't take EVA sandals in our EVA sandal recycling machine. Um, if we can't do it here, then where can we do it, right? So it's the potential to be recycled and then the actual um, recyclability. And then how are you communicating this information? So when I say she in really big, bold letters, that goes back to your circular data question um, and acknowledging that who really does this work? Um, and how do you get those materials back? So if you're investing in better materials because you want to prime the, the um, cycle path, um, how are you getting those things back as a brand? Um, and that's how you recoup your investment. So when you're thinking about design for disassembly and recycling, we want to dispel the myths. Recycling isn't just taking away garbage and, and inserting recycling. That's a fallacy. It's make-believe unless you do the other hard work, the heavy lifting of developing the practice. We need to do our designs that are simple and scalable so that it can be disassembled at scale. The data, what does the next person need to know about your product to disassemble it and to recycle it? How will they get that message? And then what I said before about design for recyclability in practice and in design. Okay, so um, in summary, Back to this original, remember this part, your cheat sheet, all you need to know, kind of use more is really the most important thing. So walking forward, thinking about how can I use these products more? I'm going to have our healthy, good input materials that's designed to be used more. And what are the strategies to do that? The physical and emotional durability, the data that tells people what to do with these products, how to repair the products, um, and co-designing that circular supply chain. Who am I taking it from? Who am I giving it to? And who does the work? 
Um, so thinking about the people who are moving these products through, it's going to help you so much. It's just pulling in that human-centered design. Okay, I think I'm three minutes over, but we're done. So thank you. We want to hear from you and hear what questions you have. What questions do you have? If any. Yeah, I have a question. I was letting see if anyone else had a questions first, but um, so I'm working on a, a line that it's like designed to be reclaimed, so designed to be repaired or recycled in those means, but it's very conceptual. And those questions of like, can you disassemble it? How does she get it to be disassembled? But like those questions are very systematic. So I guess starting off as a student and on a smaller scale of doing what I can do, it's like, how do I kind of start that like business who can I reach out to or where can I find more information to get in contact with people that can assist me or like outreach to do more of those repairs or more of those that recycling that I'm not able to do yeah so there's I think the hardest uh, the I'll just acknowledge that I there's not a good answer to your question because (laughs) no 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 and it's important that you don't just because there isn't a good answer doesn't mean it's not a good question it's a very good question but where we are at right now with recycling is it requires immense scale in order for it to be somewhat profitable so in the recycling textile recycling world the probably the biggest revolution that just happened was that a great big um company called lensing which is does um cellulose-based recycling, so they use trees as their input material, is just did a partnership with a company called RenewCell. RenewCell has been around trying to develop uh, cellulose recycling from used cotton for about 10 years. And it only took until this moment until there was enough volume for it to get scale. And so what's really hard is there's a lot of people just like you who are like, I've got 10 pounds or I've got a hundred pounds or a thousand pounds of a material and it can't feed into a system because the system's not built yet. So I think part of it is knowing that at some point one day there will be a system built and also um, that there are just some materials that will never go into that system. So uh, as Mara said, we're really only able to recycle monomaterials that it's cotton, it's wool, it's polyester, and that's about it. So if you're designing with materials that are outside of that scope, there isn't a company working on investing in that yet because uh, there isn't the scale. So that maybe that help influences, but also know that you're in this, what we also call the transition economy. We're in this place where we're trying to get out of the old, but we're not at the new yet. Um, so you may just have to acknowledge that and you don't have that solution right in front of you. But if there's like, and then that's where like, is there somewhere local that's using like arts materials or things mm-hmm. like that? Those are not strategic or long-term, but it might be a good in-between. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Um, it's in the chat. Okay. Oh. Yeah, there's a couple questions in the chat. Do you guys see those? Um, is it better to become a designer or a repair person? Well, I'll tell you, um, you will be a better designer if you know how to repair. Uh, absolutely. So, and also repair is a, I would say 
unfortunately we've taken like the skills of sewing out of, we used to take it in high school. I don't know if you guys do anymore, but um, that skill set needs, we need it. And so um, that is something that if you invest your um, skill, your time into becoming good at repair, it's never going to hurt you and you'll become a better designer. Um, why do companies like Goodwill not resell most of their items? You want to take that, Mara? You want me to? Um, you, you do it. Okay. Um, mostly because of the quality of the products and the space and limitations that they have in their own facilities. So Goodwill maybe has let's say 5,000 stores across the country and they're probably getting like a so much more than, um, than they can receive. So they ha- it's a bit of like pick the best things off the top of the pile and then they have systems in which to move the rest of it out as fast as possible. And so it's, um, it's kind of a supply chain thing. Yeah. It was just more product than in summary. That's what you said. Yeah. There's just more product than there are stores that we have way too much stuff. How do we dispose of our products responsibly? Um, so one, I have over my time have reduced buying a lot of clothes. So I have less things um, to get rid of. I think that's been a big, big piece of it. Um, and then I just have to use the existing system that we have. I don't, there's no, Mar and I don't get a secret pass to like some <laughs> secret solution. Um, Mar, uh, I actually have a pair of jeans for you, Mara, that don't fit me that I was going to bring to you. But uh uh, yeah, so you have to kind of use the systems that are out there, but the biggest impact you can have is not buying it at the beginning. Do you want to add to that, more? Yeah, no, that's absolutely just abstaining from buying it in the first place. And then the changes that you can make now with entry-level employees, like, oh, guys, everyone is important, right? Everyone is important. Like, And the way that you know that everyone's important have you ever worked at a job where there's uh, a wet blanket? There's just the person who's always complaining and always a little bit late and has got a really bad attitude. And um, I don't know, just kind of brings the mood down. All right. That doesn't matter what that person's role is in the company or the organization or the class that you're in. That person's attitude changes the mood, right? Because everybody's important. So whatever energy you put out there, I guarantee you it does start to change. And asking those questions, just like Nicole said earlier to you, Abby, just because there's not a good answer doesn't mean it's not a good question. And like this kind of as everything shifts, like across everything that we're doing in the world right now, power dynamics are also changing. And so this idea of like this hierarchical company of you get told what to do by your manager, and that's just that, and putting you in this like tunnel vision as designers, you make stuff, that's going to change too. Um, And it, it, it already really is. So you walking in as a new um, person to that company, um, entry level, as you will, and you're asking questions about where this come from, where's it going, who's doing the work, it's going to blow people's minds. And they might not have an answer for you, but it's going to stick with them. Um, So questions can be very, very powerful. And it's like everything you do, do it respectfully and listen. And um, you'd be very surprised what change can come from that. 
And also just to give voice to sometimes there's a lot of people in the room who may be older, who've done things all a certain way, but they also know that they don't want to keep doing this way. And when you're a fresh voice that comes to the table to say, Hey, I get that we design our products this way, but have we thought about what, you know, if we're going to get into resale in the future, what should we do? I think that you're helping reaffirm and probably give voice to things that maybe people haven't had the chance to say before. So your voice matters and um, ask the questions. Mm-hmm. How do you choose between durable materials that last longer and materials that are easily recyclable or gradable, but it may not last as long? Yeah, so that comes back to Mara's comment about a cycle path. So really understanding like, is this a product that needs to be lasting a long time? So it could be that we do live in a, I mean, we do live in a world right now where we don't have the best recycling solution, but we do have a growing resale opportunity. So if you look at a product and say, hey, if I do do this blended material, I can like double the length of time in which this product's going to be useful. That's the use more, right? Like you really want to think about that. But maybe you're at a company, you're at a sportswear company, and you're designing t- jersey team jerseys. And it's like, oh, well, they're going to trade players or this is going to like, this is a product that isn't going to be along for a long time. That's when you can start to say, okay, maybe I might err on the side of like less durability for the sake of recyclability. Cause I know that I'm going to need to recycle this long-term. And then there's also, uh, there's cool companies that are coming into market or designs that are just saying, no, from the get-go, we're going to do this whole thing with like, a completely like on the green side, the biological nutrients. So there's a company called Unless in Portland here, and they have went through the chemistry, they went through the materials, all of that so that they actually could compost their products at the end of their life. So just thinking about use and and not overdoing it by like months, but really thinking about years. Like, is this helping this product live longer and um and and that's the debate you're going to have with with not a perfect world that you're making that debate in mm-hmm. and that your work needs to work together with a shift in business model right you're not doing this alone um so it's a lot of the friction that you're going to be feeling is that you're transforming the circular designers and you're trying to blossom within a linear world so the change, the questions that you're asking and the change that you're asking for is coming from a lot of different places. So try not to put all of your expectations into um, just the materials, right? Um, do I choose this material or choose that choose, choose that material? Um, that the, the space to make the products that you want to make might come from a different spot. It has to come from the business model as well. Um, and so that's a conversation that's to go in a different direction. Uh, great question, Brooke. I'll tell you, no company or designer has started doing this. So that's yours to create. Um, it really is like sitting down and looking at your closet and going, okay, this was spring 17 at one point, And there was a design inspiration and a thought around what was happening in 2017 and why I wanted to buy that. And then why do you wear it now? And, and kind of like do the product interview and assess your own clothes and start to think through how this might work um, from a design 
perspective. And then from a technical perspective, um, there's some really interesting work going on with a woman named Linda Gross and Timo. I don't know how to say Timo's last name. Rathmussen, who are looking at multiple lives of product and like things like Mara discussed, over dyeing or adding materials or making them modular things like that, that you could start to explore. But this is a huge opportunity for you. Yeah. And I think a lot of what you see now, yeah, that's just kind of how we've been come to visualize it ourselves, that Cascade Circular being, you know, around these questions for so many years. And uh, so much of the examples that are coming forward right now are kind of dealing with what we have now, the linear product that we have now, but like, like unless it's doing yeah, just thinking for thinking ahead of that problem. Like if I anticipate getting it back, well, what does that change in my design process? And it's okay to sit with these really simple questions and it's going to bubble up a lot of ideas, pathways to explore. Awesome. Well, we need to let these ladies go, but what do you guys think? Wasn't this awesome? <laughs> 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 this was so great. Thank you so much. And uh, we appreciate the time, your your knowledge, your information, all the time that you put into doing this. We know that you guys live and practice um, what you taught. And that's one of the reasons why you're so inspiring to learn from. So thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you guys. Good luck out there. You're the next, you're the future. You're the next okay. designers. <laughs> Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.